As Ben has uh, quite accurately said, my name is Derek. I'm one of the church leaders here at Ebby. Um, and actually, just to be clear on this matter, it's tempting to think as a church leader, you know, well, this is the place of work, isn't it? But do you know that is so secondary to what is the reality? And that is, this is my home. And this is my family. And you're my friends. And that really is what church is all about. I know I'm going back quite a few years when I say this, but in my teenage years, I used to love going to summer camp. Loved sleeping in the tent, loved walking along the coast, loved swimming in the sea. And uh, each of our tents effectively were a team. We were in a team. And uh, we had competitive games and sports on the field. And we'd play volleyball and tug of war. Uh, we played crocker. Does anyone remember crocker? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we played football. And after, and this is one specific year that I remember, after quite a few games of football, which my team lost every time. I remember one of the camp leaders came up to me and said, look, Derek, you look fit and healthy and you can run fast, but you really can't play football, can you? And yeah, it wasn't the best pep talk, to be honest. But actually, he was right, and I wasn't that bothered, to be honest, because I was much more interested in playing a, a real game like rugby. But when it came to football, the captains would choose their team, and I can remember generally being back of the pack, last to be chosen, because I was just rubbish at playing football. I could kick a ball, but where it went after it hit my foot, I had no control over whatsoever. And better players were always chosen first. You may have had that very same experience, whether with football, in some other game, or in some other context. But in one way, that is kind of a picture of, of, of the culture of our world in which we live, where those who are considered better get chosen first. And I want to say this that Jesus' way is different. And that's going to come out in what we look at today. You see, Jesus chose 12 people for his team. These were his immediate disciples. These were his followers, his apprentices. And I can't help but feeling that we might have chosen very, very differently to Jesus. And you may appreciate the smile that came across my face when I was given a title to this talk of the dream team. Because if that is referring in any way to these 12 people that Jesus chose, well, let's consider that 
just for a moment. I believe Jesus knew who he was choosing. He knew the kind of people, characters that they were. But let me just describe them to you a little bit. This is the dream team. These are the 12, or some of the 12, that Jesus chose to be on his team. James and John. Now, they were the sons of thunder. I don't know why they were called that. But if you knew a pair of brothers who were given that kind of title, would you have them on your team? If you're thinking, you know... These could be quite loud, they might be quite fiery, and they could be trouble. Judas ended up betraying Jesus to the authorities, and I kind of want to ask, if you knew that someone was going to turn on you behind your back and work against you, would you have them on your team? Now, Peter... He denied even knowing Jesus. Talk about being chosen to be on the team. He even denied knowing Jesus. At the moment when it really counted, Peter said, I don't know him. And again, would you want that person on your team that when the heat is on, they're just going to crumble. They're just going to give in. Matthew was a tax collector. That meant he was working for the occupation forces of his day. Uh, this was Rome oppressing Matthew's own pe people, but he was working for them. Would you choose the one who would just as easily work for the opposition, for the other side, be on the other team? Thaddeus and Bartholomew, what can I say about them? Not a lot. Because <laughs> apart from knowing that Jesus chose them, we don't really get to hear anything about them. And I'm thinking, would you have them on your team? You know, people that are not going to put themselves forward, perhaps, to do anything. Thomas was full of doubt. And wouldn't you rather have someone who believed in you? Simon, another Simon, now he was known as the Zealot, and he was really a religious fanatic. And I'm thinking, would you have him on your team? You know, the one who is just so intense and in your face. It's tricky sometimes working with people like that. And ultimately, when Jesus was arrested, they all ran away. This is the dream team, according to the title of my talk here. And these are the people that Jesus chose. I say again, I wonder if we might have chosen very differently. However, given the choices that Jesus did make of these people for his team... I don't think any of us can ever say, Jesus does not want me. I wonder if any of us have ever thought that, said it. And I hope that at the end of this little talk, we'll be able together to claim a promise and to make a promise. So we're going to walk this a little bit together. I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke. Now, we're in Luke for this season. Uh, Luke was also one of Jesus' followers, and this is his story, an account of the life of Jesus. And we're breaking in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. 
An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Remember, I've already referred to James and John. They were called the sons of thunder. Okay, this is the characters that they are. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So, on this occasion, we find these disciples arguing amongst themselves. And as you can see, it's a really important issue over which they are arguing. Please note the sarcasm in my voice. Because this is the matter of which one amongst us is the greatest? And I just wonder if actually this is a little bit typical of the culture around us, the world in which we live, the attitudes of, of people where you hear and see a lot of this, that my opinion counts more than yours. I've got more qualifications than you. I am more good looking than you. I live in a nicer area than you do. It kind of concludes with this, I am better than you. And then maybe we wouldn't say those things out loud, but I wonder if sometimes that attitude actually is there, nevertheless, in our world, in our nation, in our community. And it seems that the general direction of travel in our society is instant self-gratification. Of course, there are exceptions. There always are. But this is a real generalization of, I will get what I want. And I'll have it now. Thank you very much. And it seems to be around us. It's, it's, it's I'm important. I'm the greatest. And I will have what I want. And, and dare I even ask, is that attitude in us? In me? In you? In any of us? And yet Jesus demonstrates that his way is different. And his way is one of humility. And so he takes as an example this small child. And I wonder if by doing this, this is really what Jesus was saying. This is what he was demonstrating. He knows that these followers that he has chosen, mind you, are arguing amongst themselves about which one is the greatest. 
And I wonder if he's saying this. Look at this child. This child is small, inexperienced, unlearned, untrained. This child has no status in our society. And that was true for that time and that place. Maybe still today in our world. And in comparison with your knowledge and your skill and your experience, you might consider this child is least among you all. And listen to this, because I think this is what Jesus is saying. But I rate this child highly. I see possibilities in this child. I see potential in this child. I see greatness in this child. I choose this child. And then Jesus positions the child right beside him. And I'm wondering if doing that was far more impacting upon his followers than we really appreciate. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Esther helpfully described to us a little bit of of the time and the culture, the, the Jewish culture that meant education was king. And you'd often see the rabbi with his Talmud. This was the teacher with his student, the master with his follower. And the disciple would follow his rabbi. He would walk in the rabbi's footsteps. So much so that the dust of the ground would kick up and would cover the follower. And Esther described that to us. And if you're not sure what that's all about, have a listen to her talk. It's online. But even with Jesus, I think his disciples were following suit. They, they were keeping to the norm. And when we hear of they followed Jesus, I think that's fairly literal. I think they literally followed him. He was a front and they were following behind because that was the model that they knew. That was the culture in which they lived. But what does Jesus do here, this great rabbi, this great teacher? What does he do with this child? He places this child by his side. And I just wonder if a rabbi, a teacher, a master was going to place someone by his side. Was that a statement? Was that a place of honor? The disciple would follow, be behind but this child is right beside Jesus and Jesus has placed him right there. I can't help but thinking if there was a leper there, Jesus would have done just the same. The leper, you come, I'm standing you right beside me. Jesus was expressing something of what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it's all about. The least are the greatest. The lowest are the highest. Those who are at the back are brought to the front. The rejected are received. Jesus chose the outcasts. He received the poor. He selected those whom society rejected. He wanted those who others wouldn't spend the time of day with. And for those who do follow Jesus, he has an expectation that there should be an attitude of serving and caring, not an attitude that seeks recognition and praise. Jesus' way is really one of humility. And that should be my way too. It really should. So, I want to say, lesson learnt. Well, not quite, because we've got to move on. 
John recounts how he saw someone else driving out demons in the name of Jesus. The problem is this person doing just that wasn't one of the 12 chosen by Jesus. And he, and he tried to stop him from doing this. And I really feel as though the attitude of John was one of, you're not one of us. And that kind of language can be so divisive. It can be unwelcoming. It's unkind. And again, putting him right. Jesus had to point out that the kingdom of God is big and welcoming and inclusive. Now, I know that not everyone will choose to be part of God's kingdom. But I feel Jesus is saying this, the kingdom of God, there is room for all. There really is. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. No exception. Regardless of how different we are to each other, the, the good news of Jesus is for you and you and you, for all of us. And God's love extends to all. So Jesus' way is one of welcome. And that should be my way too. I'm tempted to say again, lesson learnt. Not quite, there's another one. These come in threes, don't they? You see, James and John now, they're, they're speaking up and, and they've witnessed people rejecting Jesus. Now their reaction is one of condemn and judge. I, I sometimes read this and I still can't believe it, but maybe this is what the sons of thunder do. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Now I don't know what Jesus said to them. But he kind of told them off. You see, Jesus' way is one of grace. And that should be my way too. How quick am I to leap to judgment when God says it's grace I offer? You're probably aware of the phrase, three strikes, you're out. It's a bit like using the wrong password or the wrong pin on your laptop, phone, device. You put it in wrong three times and what happens? You generally get locked out. You don't get a fourth opportunity. You've got to go through a rigmarole to get yourself back online. And the disciples here have failed really in a sense three times over. You know, back to back as we read it at least. And you kind of think, surely Jesus is going to give up on them now. I mean, they just can't seem to get it right, can they? They keep messing up. And there are chances and opportunities. But hey, Jesus, why don't you turn them away? Find someone else to do your work. Find someone else to follow you. And yet the rest of Luke, and we'll continue in Luke for the next few weeks, the rest of Luke demonstrate that Jesus never did that. He kept with them. He kept investing in them. He kept including them, involving them. He kept on, in spite of many times when they kind of just messed up, he kept on loving them and receiving them and having them on his team 
he did not give up on them. You realize as I'm speaking about the disciples, I'm speaking now about all who choose to follow Jesus. However many times we fail and mess up. Look, here's the question. How many times can we fail before Jesus gives up on us? That's the question. I hope we all know that there is no limit there. There is no restriction. There is no ceiling. God's grace shown to us by and through Jesus is so huge. Oh, we haven't even begun to understand the love of God that reaches us and includes us, welcomes us, in spite of the many times we've messed up. But then comes the second question. I think it's an obvious one. If Jesus never gives up on us, and this is really where I'm trying to conclude that he doesn't, he doesn't give up on us. If Jesus does not give up on us, why do we give up on him? I want to say, I hope you don't give up on him. But people do give up on God and on faith. Christianity, Jesus himself. Often in the middle of suffering, sometimes at the time of loss, maybe when people offend them, perhaps they face poverty, or just when life is really hard. And if we've ever felt, <laughs> if we've ever felt that way ourselves, and we're tempted just to jack it all in, because it's too hard, too painful. If we're ever tempted to jack it all in, I just kind of think, let's keep on asking us this question. Would Jesus give up on me? And I'm thinking, no, he wouldn't. And I want to ask, so why would I give up on him? And I want to finish just these really simple few thoughts. I said we'd arrive at this point of claiming a promise and, and making a promise. I want us to claim this promise. And I think it is a promise from Jesus himself. Jesus will never give up on me. Now, can we claim that as a promise? Don't we hear that being said to us by Jesus? In so many other ways, different ways, various ways, Jesus keeps on coming back to us at the real point of We've failed, we've messed up, we're hurting, we're offending and we've been offended and we want to give it all up. And Jesus says this, I will not give up on you. I think it's a promise. I think we should claim that promise. So there's a promise for us to claim today, now, just in the light of this part of the Bible that we've read together. The promise I think we should make back to him is, and Jesus, I'm never going to give up on you. Because there are times when I just feel like giving it all up, jacking it all in, hiding, running away. And I will use some honourable language, believe me I will. I'll say, oh, I'm not giving up on Jesus, I'm giving up on the church. The church has hurt me. 
And that's what I'm giving up on. I'll say I'm giving up because someone really hurt me deeply. And we might not be honest enough to say I'm giving up on Jesus. But how often are we that close? That close to actually saying that? And if we don't verbalize it, we're living out that we're close to that point. That choice, that decision, those words, Jesus, I'm giving up. It's too much. It's too hard. And I just hear Jesus saying back at me, but I don't give up on you. Can we make that promise? Let's claim the promise. Jesus will never give up on me. I believe that. And let's make this promise. And I will never give up on Jesus. Jesus.